is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a cave of clarity in a clannish world. It's like Candyland, if by candy you mean crystal meth. Ugh. Because we can be addictive to listen to. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and who am I? I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over... 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Nurse Amy. My real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, balloon animals don't stand a chance at her birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) On this show, you're going to get all the information you'll need about the art of motorcycle maintenance, but you'll also get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes for your family to get medically prepared in troubled times. But before we start, listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We surely urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Wow, you can be the person at the end of those commercials about, you know... Why drag it out? Just Nutraceuticals and stuff. (laughs) Well, all right, sounds good. Well, so anyhow, seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available or don't if you have no reason to live. But what happens in a disaster when the ambulance is heading in the other direction? When you're the highest medical asset left, you better get off your duff if you're going to save your stuff. Before I get started, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded, greatly revised, is sitting atop its Amazon categories. We appreciate everybody's support. If you still haven't gotten the fourth edition, check it out on Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. You will not regret it. Many of the medical items in your storage, like instruments and some dressings, may come already sterile. In survival, though, Dressings are consumed and sterile instruments become dirty. This leads to the question of how to sterilize your reusable items and produce a store of sterile supplies off the grid. There are a number of ways that you can accomplish this goal. Simply placing them in gently boiling water for about 30 minutes would be a reasonable strategy but may not eliminate some stubborn bacterial spores and could cause issues with rusting over time, especially on sharp instruments like scissors or knives. By the way, you should always disinfect scissors and, let's say, clamps in the open position. Soaking in chlorine solutions, sodium or calcium hypochlorite, for 15 to 30 minutes in a 10% chlorine solution will disinfect instruments. Any longer, however, and you risk rusting. Some recommend adding a teaspoon of baking soda to slow down deterioration. Always rinse instruments in sterilized water, by the way, after soaking. Soaking in 70% isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol, for 30 minutes is another option. Some will even put instruments in a metal tray with alcohol and then ignite them. Although I don't recommend this method, it or even fire itself, if it were evenly distributed, will do the job, but eventually causes damage to the instruments. Be aware that this can be quite dangerous and should always be undertaken outdoors. You might consider soaking your instruments in chemical solutions that are specifically made for the purpose of high-level disinfection, although not necessarily sterility. This is done in the absence of heat, something very important if you have items that are made of plastic. A popular brand is Cydex OPA, a trade name for a solution with thalaldehyde or glutaraldehyde as the active ingredient. For basic disinfection, insert the instruments in a tray with the solution for about 20 minutes. Soaking overnight, 10 to 12 hours, gives an acceptable level of near sterility 
for survival purposes. There are Cydex test strips available which identify if the solution has retained its effectiveness. If it's still potent, the solution can actually be reused for up to two weeks. As an alternative, some have recommended using 6 to 7.5% hydrogen peroxide for 30 minutes. Hydrogen peroxide, by the way, in household form is only about 3%. Ovens are an option if you have power. For a typical oven, metal instruments are placed wrapped in aluminum foil or placed in metal trays. The oven is then heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, or alternatively, 320 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. During the pandemic mass shortage, some have advocated dry oven heat at 160 degrees Fahrenheit for about 30 minutes as a method to re-sterilize scarce disposable masks. Although ovens and microwaves have been used to sterilize instruments, probably the best way to guarantee sterility in an austere setting is a pressure cooker. Hospitals use a type of pressure cooker called an autoclave that uses steam to clean surgical towels, bandages, scrubbed instruments, and other items. All modern medical facilities clean their equipment with this type of device. Having a pressure cooker or canner will allow you to approach the level of sterility required for minor surgical procedures. Using a pressure cooker to sterilize instruments goes as follows. Wash and scrub instruments to remove any visible debris and allow them to dry. Then wrap them in aluminum foil. Remember, clamps and scissors should be in open position. Place a wire stand or steamer basket on the bottom of the pot. Another option is to, to prevent water from touching the foil-wrapped instruments is to use an uncovered mason jar to hold them. Add one or two inches of plain water to the pot. Run the pressure cooker at about 15 to 20 PSI for at least 20 minutes. Allow everything to cool gradually, then safely allow the steam to escape and let instruments dry and cool inside the cooker. Once cool and dry, place the foil-wrapped instruments inside plastic bags for storage purposes. Pressure cookers, if used incorrectly, can cause severe burn and scalding injuries. Be sure to have a working knowledge and some experience using them, and don't forget to read your manual. Also, pressure cookers aren't easy to lug from place to place, so it's best for those who plan to stay in place in disaster scenarios. A significant development in the quest to put together a portable and reliable method to sterilize instruments comes from a study commissioned by the military. The study, which was published in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, explored the use of UVC light as a survival medical tool. In this study, instruments were contaminated with MRSA and other bacteria, then scrubbed with chlorhexidine hippoclens for 30 seconds and dried with a sterile gauze 4x4 pad. Then, a UVC wand was passed within 4 inches over the instruments for about 45 seconds, trying to cover as much of the surface of the instruments as possible. Evaluation afterwards revealed a 100% reduction of bacteria and achieved levels of sterilization acceptable for immediate use in the field. If the instruments were not used right away, rapid vacuum sealing extended the life of sterility. Indeed, UV light has long been considered to be lethal to viruses as well as bacteria. It works by damaging viral DNA or RNA. Most viruses have one or the other, but not both. With a damaged genetic code, replication is more difficult, and most viruses are deactivated. We hesitate to say killed because it's really not certain whether viruses technically meet the definition of life. Not just any UV radiation will do. Sunlight contains various types of UV light, UVA, UVB, and UVC. The vast majority of UV radiation, 95%, reaching the surface of the planet is UVA, or ultraviolet A. It's capable of penetrating into the deep layers of the skin and considered to be the main cause of age-related skin changes such as wrinkles and spots. UVB comprises about 5% of ultraviolet radiation to which we're exposed. 
Although reaching only the top layers of skin, damage to skin DNA leads to sunburns and even skin cancers. Protection from UVA and UVB radiation can be obtained with the proper use of sunblock. UVC radiation is a shorter, higher level wavelength than UVA or UVB. It's good at damaging the genetic material of both viruses and humans if they're exposed. While UVB can take hours to cause sunburn, UVC may take only seconds to do the same damage. Fortunately, it's rare to encounter it thanks to the filtering capacity of our ozone layer. Although little UVC radiation reaches us, many artificial sources of UVC are used for disinfection in hospitals, factories, and even airplanes. It's not foolproof, however. In the end, the effect varies by wavelength, the amount of organic matter, temperature, and the type of microbe, as well as the distance of the light from the object to be disinfected, shadowed areas, and even dirty lamp tubes. Still, it has the potential to be another tool in the medical woodshed. Rats. No, I'm not cussing. I'm actually talking about rodents as disease vectors, especially off the grid. Rats and mice can easily take over areas with poor sanitary conditions and are vectors, also called carriers, of many diseases that you're going to see off the grid. Rodents may pass things like hemorrhagic fever, salmonella, hantavirus, even the plague to others. Despite carrying deadly viruses, a vector doesn't necessarily become ill itself. For the end host, that's you, by the way, the story is quite different. Rodent-proofing a survival retreat may be difficult, but it's necessary to maintain the health of your people. Transmission of disease can occur as a result of exposure to infected feces, urine, saliva, or even nesting material, bites from parasites that use the rodent as a host, bites from the infected animal itself, even handling of infected rodents may do it, skin contact may be all that's necessary. Rats and mice can serve as vectors for several serious illnesses. Here are some. Hantavirus, thought to be caused by inhalation of tiny amounts of rodent feces. This is a viral infection without a proven cure or even a vaccine. Signs and symptoms include fever, fatigue, GI irregularity, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, muscle aches, miserable stuff. Hantavirus cases may become life-threatening once they get to the lungs. There is no cure, as I said, existing for this disease. Treatment consists of just dealing with the individual symptoms like fever, abdominal cramps, and others. Plague. Yep, I mentioned plague. Fleas on rodents infected with the bacterium Yersinia pestis can bite humans and cause life-threatening infections. Treatment consists of antibiotics like doxycycline or ciprofloxacin. You can still find these if you look hard enough in veterinary form like fish antibiotics, but it's getting harder every day. So if you haven't gotten some of these fish antibiotics I've been talking about for more than a decade, you might consider it now. Then there's tularemia. Tularemia is caused by the bacterium Francisella tularensis. Tularemia is carried by ticks or flies that infest rats or even rabbits. Fever and respiratory symptoms are the most common presentations. If they're treated early, doxycycline 100 milligrams orally twice a day for 10 days may be effective. Rat bite fever is another thing, I guess, that would make sense that could come from being bitten by a rat. A bacterial infection caused by Streptobacillus moniliformis you can expect to see fever, joint pain, swelling, muscle tenderness, headache, and a red spotty rash that begins at the hands and feet, interestingly enough. These symptoms often start after the bite itself has healed, which is particularly troublesome. Penicillin is still used for this, 500 milligrams orally about every 6 hours for 7 to 14 days, or as I mentioned before, doxycycline 100 milligrams orally twice a day for 10 days are treatment options. 
Then there's lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus, LCMV, a virus illness that's carried by mice that starts as a flu-like syndrome but can progress to affect the nervous system. Mild cases resolve spontaneously in one to three weeks. Severe cases are treated with specialized drugs not available off the grid. So you really want to rodent-proof your retreat. So let's talk about rodent-proofing. Rats and mice are thought to have originated in Asia, but wherever these animals are introduced, they cause a significant amount of environmental and economic damage. Indeed, they're some of the world's most invasive species. Every year, a percentage of the world's food supply is contaminated by rat or mice droppings, urine, or hair. Now, you won't have much difficulty telling if you have rats or mice. They defecate up to 50 times a day, so there should be clear evidence of droppings, especially in attics and basements. There may be evidence of partially eaten food, gnawed containers, or nesting material. Look often in the back of pantries for signs of an infestation. Another favorite route of travel, especially at night, is along the baseboards of walls. Placing sawdust in these areas often yield paw prints, so you actually might be able to tell whether you have rats or mice. Once these guys invade your home, they're very difficult to remove. Therefore, it makes sense to take measures to rodent-proof your home. You should carefully evaluate the house for points of entry from the level of the foundation all the way to the roof line. This includes sewer lines, bathroom vents, pipes, gutters, doors, and windows. Some rodent-proofing techniques for homes include ceiling cracks and building foundations, walls, siding, roof joints. Rodents only need about a quarter of an inch honestly, as an opening to gnaw their way into your home. Metal mesh scouring pads or galvanized window screening, not steel wool, which quickly deteriorates, also may be stuffed into the crevices as a temporary solution. Installing vent guards in bathrooms or washer or dryer vents, that's also a good idea to prevent rodent infestation. Placing barriers to prevent climbing rodents from getting up pipes or gutters. Trimming trees so that branches don't come close to the roof. Preventing rodents, especially rats, from tunneling under the foundation of the house by placing some concrete pavers or gravel. The material should extend at least three feet from the exterior walls of the retreat. Rodent proofing also involves careful attention to both indoor and outdoor sanitation. Suggestions for inside, never leave leftover food or water out overnight. This is a good idea for just about anything, including roaches. Keep countertops, sinks, and kitchen appliances clean and disinfected. Bread boxes, by the way, may seem old-fashioned, but they're there for a reason, to keep the bread away from the rats and mice. Never leave pet food out at night and clean all bowls daily. Rodents love to eat dog and cat food. Store dry human or pet foods in sealed containers at least 18 inches off the floor. Keep toilet lids down until you need them. For outside, store firewood away from your home or at least 18 inches off the ground. Keep the side and backyards free of debris that might serve as shelters. Trim all vegetation that abuts the house until the ground is easily inspectable. Eliminate tree branches that make eaves and gutters accessible. Remove ivy, other climbing plants from exterior walls that might hide points of entry. Construct barriers around birdhouses and bird feeders to prevent seed from being accessible to rats and mice. Remove any unused fruits or vegetables from the garden. Keep garbage can lids tightly closed. Deny access to water by fixing leaky faucets. And avoid putting any animal products in your compost bin. If rats and mice currently live in your home, you may need some traps. Your standard mouse trap is a snap trap. Snap traps should always be placed perpendicular to the walls. Keep the bait side against the baseboard. It's wise to use several traps a few feet apart along the rodent's usual path. 
Traps can also be fastened to pipes with wire or thick rubber bands if your rodent visitors are climbing to upper levels. Another option is the glue trap. They're effective, especially against mice, but they leave you with a live animal to kill. Throw the trap and animal into a bucket of water if you need to, or strike it with a stick several times just behind the head. Many people prefer the use of rat poison, but there's always the risk that something or someone that you don't want to kill, like a household pet or a child, might accidentally ingest it. Poisons also leave you with a bunch of dead, rotting animals inside your walls. Hey, we're adding a new segment to the show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, please send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Dan, who writes, Is comfrey a potential treatment for alopecia areata? The local doctor wants to inject steroids into my head. It doesn't seem like a good idea. Thanks, Dan from Connecticut. Short and to the point, Dan, just like I like it. Dan, alopecia areata is a common autoimmune disorder that often results in unpredictable hair loss. Autoimmune disorders occur when your body's natural defenses go haywire and attack parts of itself. It happens more often than you think. In the United States alone, alopecia affects almost 7 million people. The majority are under 30 years of age. In most, hair falls out in small patches about the size of a quarter. In a minority, it can be much worse, sometimes leading to the complete loss of hair on the scalp or rarely the entire body. Alopecia areata often develops suddenly over the course of a few days. The condition occurs when white blood cells involved in protection against infection and other issues attack the cells in hair follicles, causing them to shrink and dramatically slow down hair production. It's unknown exactly what causes the body's immune system to target hair follicles in this way. It appears that genetics, your genetics, are a factor as alopecia areata is more likely to occur in a person who has a close family member with the problem. It doesn't have to be alopecia, though. Other research has shown that many people have a personal or family history of other types of immune disorders, such as allergic dermatitis, autoimmune thyroiditis, and vitiligo, a condition characterized by a severe loss of pigment in the skin. Despite what many people think, there's actually little scientific evidence to support the view that alopecia areata is caused by stress. That actually surprised me. You'd think it'd be a factor. Alopecia areata does not directly make people sick, nor is it contagious or decrease the life expectancy. It can, however, be very difficult to adapt to emotionally. For many people, alopecia areata is a traumatic disease that warrants treatment addressing not only the physical, but the emotional aspect of hair loss. There are even support groups to help people cope. As for treatment, there's currently no cure for alopecia areata, although there are some forms of conventional treatment suggested by doctors to help hair regrow more quickly. You've been recommended one of these, Dan, cortisone injections. These are powerful drugs that suppress the immune system and decrease inflammation. They're injected into your scalp superficially. Now, honestly, whether they help or not is actually a matter of some controversy. A less drastic version would be corticosteroid creams like clobetazole or fluosinonide or maybe oral therapy. As the absorption is less than with many injections, they take longer to produce results. 
Other medications that can be prescribed that either promote hair growth or affect the immune system include minoxidil, also known as Rogaine. Although these promote hair growth, they won't prevent the development of new bald patches. The use of photochemotherapy, a combination of skin creams and UVA light, is supported by some studies, may be an alternative to more invasive therapies. Sunscreen, head coverings to protect from cold and sun, and glasses, especially if the eyelashes are missing, are recommended to prevent damage to sensitive skin. In terms of natural remedies, Dan, I don't see a lot of scientific evidence for comfrey as an effective treatment for alopecia areata, and it can be dangerous if applied to broken skin. Preliminary research in animals, however, has found that quercetin, a naturally occurring bioflavonoid found in fruits and vegetables, can protect against the development of alopecia areata and also effectively treat existing hair loss. There are some that recommend other things like rubbing capsaicin cream, onion or garlic gel or juice, cooled green tea, almond oil, rosemary oil, honey or coconut milk into the scalp. While none of these are likely to cause harm, their effectiveness is at best supported only by small studies. Worth a shot, but more needs to be done before they can be deemed effective against alopecia. A small ray of light, Dan. Although there's no known cure, people with alopecia areata who have only a few patches of hair loss often experience a spontaneous full recovery without the need for treatment. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Please don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones. See you next time.